0: Father, thanks for your goodness and kindness to us this morning, every morning. Thanks for us being able to just take a moment to pause and be silent and reflect on you. I pray as we wrap up the series this morning that you would remind us of what we've learned the last 20 plus weeks and understanding that we need you as our king. As we follow earthly kings and it does not work out well for us as we lead people God, we need to have a posture of humility and dependence. So help us see that this morning. Uh, Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to be transformed into your likeness? Would you change us? Uh, We ask that your spirit would do it. Uh, We desperately need you to do it. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. Well, good morning. Good to see you this morning at Redemption Peoria. I'm John. I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible, you can open it to 1 Kings. Chapter Twelve. If it's not already there, let me kind of lay the groundwork for what we're going to do today, uh, because today's a little unique. We're wrapping up our series. We've been in a series called "We Want a King" for the last. This is week twenty-one of this series, where we've looked at the rise and fall of the first three kings of the Old Testament, and a man named Saul, and a man named David, and a man named Solomon. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take uh, about a third of the time and we're going to walk through First uh, Kings chapter 12, kind of wrapping up our series. And so we'll take a, a shorter amount of time looking at the text as we look at the verses there. Then we're going to take about a third of the time and looking at the entire series and wrapping up, kind of putting a bow on like, man, what did God teach us in the last 21 weeks, hopefully? Um, And then at the very end, we will take a little bit of time and we will introduce you to what we're walking into in the next four weeks um, as we practice Advent, the the four Sundays leading up to uh, Christmas, the celebration of the birth of Christ. And so that's kind of where we're going to be headed this morning. So we're going to jump right in. Uh, First Kings chapter 12, I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and then we'll talk about it. And then I'll kind of sum up. Uh, verses 12 through 24, and then I will read verses 25 through the end of the chapter through 33, and we'll kind of talk about uh, how does this relate to us as we kind of, again, wrap up this series. So 1 Kings chapter 12, starting in verse 1, this is what it says. It says, Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. Hold on real quick. If you're joining us for the first time, just to hit you up on the story. So Rehoboam is Solomon's son. Uh, Solomon, we saw in the last chapter, chapter 11, Man, he starts off really well following God, honoring God, and then just like every other king, his character starts to erode, so much so by last week in chapter 11, man, he's making really bad decisions, and God says he's going to take the kingdom away from him, but he's not going to do it until he passes away. So at the end of chapter 11, he does pass away. This is his son taking the throne in chapter 12. Sorry, I didn't mention that, but so verse 2, this is Rehoboam. And as soon as Jeroboam the son of Nebat heard it for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon then Jeroboam returned from Egypt and they sent and called him and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came to and said to Rehoboam Your father made our yoke heavy now therefore lighten our hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us and we will serve you And he said to them Go away for 3 days And then come again to me. So the people went away. Stop there for a minute. Just to remind you, what we saw last week in chapter 11 is because of Solomon's kind of erosion of character, as he has this kind of idol of having more and bigger, and he starts following other gods instead of following the one true God, we see that he starts to become more like Pharaoh than he does God. He starts to use forced labor, just like Pharaoh in Egypt. And so now that Rehoboam is king, they're saying, hey, The people are coming to him and going like, we need to end this forced labor. This isn't good. It needs to light up. It's too heavy for us. So that's what they request of Rehoboam. He says, go away. I'm going to spend some time thinking about it. That's where we pick up in verse six. It says, then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, how do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, If you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them, when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel of the old men that gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, What do you advise that we should answer these people who have said to me, Lighten the yoke that your father has put on us. Verse 10. And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus you shall speak this to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. sure what that means. Verse eleven. And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So let's stop there and let's unpack like what's going on. Rehoboam takes power. He starts going, okay, what's the next step? These people come to him, his subjects and go, hey, you need to lighten the load, this is too hard, this is not good for us, and if you lighten the load, we will serve you. He gets advice, he gets the advice from the elders, the ones that have been wise counsel, they say, hey, what should we do? They say, you need to lighten the load. Go, nah, I don't know if I like that. He's like, so I'm gonna ask my buddies, and I'm gonna ask it and put it in the form of a question. Hey, what do you guys think I should do? They go, don't lighten the load, make it harder. Again, this is kind of a throwback to what Pharaoh does. If you remember the story in Egypt, when Moses approaches him and said, you need to release my people, Pharaoh's like, release them from their work. And then he goes and he kind of doubles their work with less uh, resources. Their quotas are higher. This is a similar situation. And what I think we can pull from this um, as we continue to see this idea of getting counsel outside of the Lord, which has been a theme in the midst of our series, is that's what Rehoboam does. Uh, when I was, uh, right before I left my other job with, with a- Athletes in Action, which is part of Campus Crusade for Christ, I was in a leadership, a two-year leadership track called Leadership Development. And Mark Rudder was uh, the head of all HR for all of Crew, and in the midst of it, we were in this session talking about how do you lead a healthy body culture. And in it, he, sh- he showed us this chart. So I've kind of adapted from some of his work. But this, I know you probably can't see it, says healthy body on uh, this side and then unhealthy body on the far side. This is what I think is happening in this moment and I think it's really applicable to us as we say, what does it look like to be in a healthy body system? And so what happens if you're in a healthy body system in a community, when somebody comes to you and they speak truth, they speak something they see in you that they're concerned about they're worried about and they go, hey, man, this is what I'm seeing in you. If that's the case, in a healthy body system, you receive them as the messenger, and you are the recipient of that truth. You're the recipient of that truth, they are the messenger, even if it's hard and it doesn't quite make sense to you, you go, okay, I need to pay attention to this. And in the midst of that, you go to your community, the other people around you, and they continue to speak truth to you, and you begin to grow in community. This is a healthy ecosystem of a body. But what if a lot of us do, and what Rehoboam does here, we come sometimes operate in an unhealthy body system. When somebody comes to you and they bring truth to you, instead of them being the messenger, they become the perpetrator. Instead of you becoming the recipient, you become the victim. Has this ever happened to you? Where somebody brings some type of truth to you and you go, what? You, you just don't know. You don't understand And all of a sudden, that person becomes the victim, or you become the victim, and that person becomes the perpetrator. And then what do you do? At that point, you don't just agree or find community for other people to speak truth into you. Instead, you go to the people that you know will side with you. And so you go to them, and you form it in, in like a question, just like in the text here, how Rehoboam does. He goes, hey, what do you think about this? Do you think this is true? then they go, no, that's not, that's crazy. Yeah, because so-and-so said this about me. Can you believe they said this about me? And then you begin to go into this cycle, and you deny truth, and you look for people to rescue you from that truth. And then you don't grow in reality. This happens all the time in our life, if we're honest with ourselves. happens at work, happens in our family. I mean, kids are really good at this, little kids, because when they don't want to receive truth, what do they do? They go to the parent that they know will side with them. And they try and pit that parent against the other parent. Doesn't doesn't this happen? Doesn't this happen with you at work if somebody brings a hard truth to you or a friend brings a hard truth to you and you go, I don't really like that. You go, well, who's going to agree with me? And you find those people that will agree with you and then you pose it in a question so that you can get some ammunition. This is unhealthy body living. Instead, going like... Having a humble heart and what truth do I need to hear from this? This is exactly what Rehoboam does, and it does not work out well for him. What happens is you continue to read the text in verses 12 through 24 is that Rehoboam, again, we see he sides with his younger friends that don't have the wisdom that says, Hey, you gotta make it harder for these people. You gotta show them who's boss, you gotta take power. This is what you need to do. You need to double down on their load. And so what Rehoboam does in verse 18, he sends his guy Adoram to the people. And Adaram delivers the news. Actually, it's gonna be harder. And what the people do in that moment, they're already fed up, they're already at their limit. They pick up stones and they kill him. They kill the messenger. And so what Rehoboam does when he finds out, he, he jumps in his chariot and he's out. He dips. He's like, I don't want to die. He leaves. In the midst of him leaving, the people look around, and they go, Well. Jeroboam seems like the right leader. Let's make him the king. And so what happens is the kingdom begins to split. It begins to divide. There's Israel and there's Judah at this point. It's a divided kingdom based on what happens in this leadership. Let's pick it up in verse 25. It says, And then Jeroboam, now he's king, he built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out there and built Penel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David if this people go up and offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. Then the heart of his people will turn again to the Lord and Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and return Rehoboam, the king of Judah. So the king took counsel, made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and one he put in Dan. And this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan before one. He also made temples on high places and appointed priests among all the people who were not the Levites. Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. He offered sacrifices on the altar, so he did in Bethel, sacrificing the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priest of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar, and he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month. And in the month, he had devised from his own heart, and he instituted feasts for the people of Israel, and went up to the altar to make offerings." So what is Jeroboam doing here? He takes power after Rehoboam leaves and, and just rules over Judah. Now in Jerusalem, and Israel, Jeroboam is the king. Here's what he does in verse 25. He secures his power, <clears throat> fortifies the city. He gets everything kind of squared away. But then in verse 26 and 27, you see he's kind of insecure, He doesn't want to lose his power. He says, man, if these people start going back and offering the sacrifices at the temple, then eventually they're going to realize that they need to follow God, and they're going to bring Rehoboam back into power, and I can't have that. I don't want to lose my power. And so in his insecurity, he starts making decisions in his own heart. He doesn't take counsel from other people. He takes counsel from himself. And his solution is, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're gonna set up these idols. He basically institutes idolatry. He says, We're gonna set up these two golden calves. And here's what I'm gonna say: I'm gonna say, these, this is the God that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Because if you remember the story, what happens when Moses goes up for the Ten Commandments? The people get impatient, and Aaron does what? Takes all the gold of all the people, and what does he fashion? A golden calf. And so this is hearkening back to this, and he goes, this is really the God that saved you, and the people start to worship this God. And we read this, and we go, like, what's wrong with you people? Like, this is crazy. He fashions these golden calves, and then he starts to have these fake priests, these fake sacrifices, and these fake altars. But they kind of feel like they're what they did before, They're close enough to go, oh, this kind of feels like worshiping Yahweh. And it's more convenient. I don't have to go all the way to Jerusalem. I can just go to this calf or I can go to that calf. That seems a little bit more convenient. And Jeroboam is the king, and he's leading them in this fashion. And we look at this, and we go, man, these people are ridiculous. I can't believe they're doing this. Don't they know the story? Don't they know what they need to be doing? How are they falling into this? And Jeroboam forms these golden calves. But even in our culture, when you look around the church today, some of us have formed golden elephants and golden donkeys, right? We've said this this person, this president, this governor, they're going to solve all our problems. They're going to be the fix-it. Let's go. Let's worship then. And we go, well, that kind of sounds close enough. And if we put all our chips with this person, maybe they'll rescue us. We have kind of these fake altars or these fake priests, and they kind of seem similar. When you look at the church across the board in America, you go like, "I don't know if we're worshiping the right thing." If we take an honest look at ourselves, we're not too far from these people often. And what happens? Again, if we get counsel like the beginning of the chapter from people we want the answers from that we know they'll agree with us and so we get counsel from them, we go after that type of counsel instead of the honest, true counsel or we start not going after counsel at all, we just look inside of our heart and we go, listen, what does my heart tell me to do? And often our hearts are selfish, they're confused. We need the body of Christ around us to help us make good decisions. And as we get counsel from people that tell us what we want to hear, counsel by our own insecurities of our hearts, it leads to disobedience. And man, when we disobey God and His warning, it eventually leads to our destruction every single time. I think that's something we've seen in this series over and over and over again. What else have we learned in this series as we kind of wrap up chapter 12 there, and we look collectively I was looking back at my notes this last week and just taking some time to reflect and pray and and look through the last 21 weeks of the sermons that we've been talking about. So if you're joining us for the first time, hopefully this gives you a nice broad perspective of where we've been in the last 21 weeks. If you've been with us, hopefully this is a a good reminder. But when I step back and I look at kind of the main points of the, the sermons over the last 21 weeks, these themes begin to surface over the story. And it's clear what we've learned hopefully from this series. We've learned that I don't know how to pronounce Hebrew names. That's definitely true. Uh, If you've been with us in any amount of time, I've read one verse, verse 10, somebody's name or a place of a city and then verse 13, I pronounce it differently. I don't know how to do it. That is clear. But we've also learned in the midst of this series how, man, we have a faithful God that desires to lead us. And when we have a posture of humility when we have a posture of repentance, God is always faithful. We've also learned as we gain power, as these leaders gain power, their character starts to erode. So what does that mean for us to to continue to stay low, to continue to stay humble, to continue to get help from people around us? We need one another. We've seen that time and time again. So we're going to walk through the next 10 minutes just kind of like, what have we learned? We started in 1 Samuel 8, if you weren't with us at the beginning. We started in that chapter because what we saw in 1 Samuel 8 was the people looked around and said, we want a king. We want a king like the other nations. We're seeing these other nations around us that are ruling with a human king. And we're just tired of following you by faith, God. It's so hard to follow an invisible God that we can't see even though he's provided, even though he's protected. And so they go to the prophet Samuel and they go like, we want a king, we want a king like the other nations. And what we saw in that first week is that if you follow an earthly king, you'll get earthly results man, if you follow a heavenly king, you will get heavenly results. And so many times we follow earthly kings in the midst of our lives, and then we get earthly results, and we're confused by that. But if we bend our knee to the king of the universe and King Jesus, and we follow him, we will get heavenly results. He can produce things that no earthly king can produce. He can give us forgiveness and satisfaction and worth that we just get partially from earthly as we continued in the study, we looked at 1 Samuel chapter 9 where we got introduced to the character of Saul and we saw that in following an earthly king, human charisma always trumps godly character. But in following a heavenly king, God's character always trumps human charisma. We saw that Saul, man, he, he looks really good from the outside. He's tall and rich and handsome and, and you go like, that, that should be our king. That's who we're after. But in God's economy, And character is so much more than the outside. It matters how you treat people, what your character is like over time. And often we vie for the person that looks good on the outside, that's dynamic, that's fun, and can bring a crowd and all those things. And we go, what about their character? And in God's economy, their character always trumps their charisma. We saw this in Saul. And then we saw in 1 Samuel chapter 11 uh, that Saul actually starts out well. If you remember right, God's spirit rushes upon him because he is anointed as the new king. And in the midst of that, he fights for his people and he gains victory. And what we see is that we have a spirit that rescues. All throughout this story, we see when God's spirit shows up and the people that are leading submit to his spirit, amazing things happen. And even in that moment, Saul gives his uh, a life in the midst of it to the spirit, and he conquers the enemy, and he even gives credit to God. 1 Samuel chapter 11 makes Saul look really good. He does it right for one jacket. And as we continue to follow his story, what we got to see is his insecurity and his power started to come to the surface. Those cracks in his character started to get exposed as he led. And in 1 Samuel chapter 14, we learn that if you slip into pride, you will slide into a downfall. That's what we see Saul doing. He starts to slip into pride. He cares more about what other people think than what God thinks of him, and that leads to his downfall. And if anything, we heard anything over the 21 weeks, it should be that we need to be humble people. We need to have a posture of humility and dependence on God's spirit and how pride will crush us in its sneaky, And we need to be aware of that. We saw in the next chapter in 1 Samuel 15 that ultimately led to Saul's downfall that partial obedience is disobedience. Partial obedience is disobedience and disobedience can only be overcome by the gospel of repenting and turning and we're all gonna disobey but if we kind of do this partial disobedience like Saul does and we rationalize it we go, no, 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 I didn't really do anything wrong like that's dangerous and that's a problem. And that we need the gospel to change us in the midst of our disobedience. Well, David enters into the conversation, even though Saul is king at this point. And in 1 Samuel 17, we see as David fights Goliath that God is the hero of our story. He is the one that kills our giants. It's God's spirit that overtakes David. Saul gets the spirit taken away from him in the Old Testament context, and he's not remembering the things of God. He's not seeing with spiritual eyes. He's going, man, David can't do any of this, but David, because he has the spirit and he's humble, he sees and he remembers what God does. God rescued me from the lion. God rescued me from the bear. You think God can't beat this giant? And that's what we've seen. It's not that David is the hero, the spirit. God is the hero working through David see that as David steps into the scene. Well, Saul continues to unravel in his downfall, and in 1 Samuel chapter 22, we saw what he does. He rejects wisdom, he rejects relationship, and he rejects his maker, and when he does that, he becomes a monster, if you remember that. He orders 85 priests to be slaughtered and killed. You go, how did he get here? Because of his pride, because of his ego, because of his threat of David taking over, he starts to move in this direction. And if we reject wisdom, if we reject relationship, if we reject God as our maker, we will become monsters. In the midst of that, as he continues to chase after David in 1 Samuel chapter 24, We see David going into this cave and Saul goes into the cave as well. And David has the opportunity. He has the opportunity to take out his threat, to take out his enemy and all of his guys. are like, this is your chance. This is God is giving him into your hands. You need to kill Saul. But David doesn't do it because he gets stricken, the text says, by the spirit. And he doesn't put matters in his own hands. And so we asked the question that week, are you taking matters into your own hands or are you putting matters in God's hands? David put matters into God's hands in that moment. Well, eventually Saul ends up dying on the battlefield at the end of 1 Samuel, and we pick up the story in 2 Samuel. And what we see in David is he's not automatically made king. There's kind of internal fighting in the nation and between the the people. And what we saw is instead of fighting our family over power and pain and position, which is what happens in the text in chapters 3 through 5, we ought to strive to live in harmony with heartbreak with honesty, and with humility. That's what David ends up doing. In 2 Samuel chapter 9, as David finally takes power as the king, one of the first things he does is he's remembering his covenant love with his friend Jonathan. He says, I'm going to go after anyone that's still alive. He says, is there anybody left in the line of Jonathan? And there's one person named Mephibosheth that's still alive. And what we see is this beautiful picture in King David that points to King Jesus is that we have a king that pursues, a king that restores, and a subject that moves from shame to approval. So as David pursues Mephibosheth, as he restores him, he invites him to the king's table to be in his presence. And Mephibosheth moves. Remember, he is uh, crippled. He cannot do anything on his own. But he moves from shame to approval. And he gets to enter into the presence of the king. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful picture. Second Samuel chapter 9. That's the last real beautiful picture we get of David. Because again, as he rises, we start to see the erosion of his character, specifically with how he objectifies women. And in 2 Samuel chapter 11, we see that he abuses sexually Bathsheba, and it leads to his downfall. And when we looked at that, we looked at these four steps to death, that it didn't happen overnight, but that the enemy kind of makes these kicks to our shin so he can set us up to give us an uppercut and lay us down on the mat. If you remember that illustration, what we saw, we saw four, death, four steps to death. What David did, what we need to be aware of doing, neglecting our duty, indulging our eyes, abusing our power, and hiding our sin. This is what leads to what happens in the tragic story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. But we also saw three steps to freedom. The three steps to freedom that David takes that we ought to take is being exposed by God's word. As the prophet Nathan exposes God's word to David... And then we need to be helped by God's people. Nathan helps him, comes around him in his restoration. And then we need to be welcomed by God's grace, which is what David ultimately does. But even in the midst of that tragic sin, there's still consequences. There's ripple effects of what happens because of his sin. And we see that in the next several chapters in 2 Samuel 13 and onward. And what we see is that David, even in the midst of his sin and being restored, he still doesn't lead well. He has kind of this passive leadership, and so we saw these extremes of passive apathy or aggressive control. But instead of that, we need to have a spirit of patient dependence, But ultimately, that David gets to by the end of those chapters. But if you remember, he lets his son do terrible things to his daughter, and he's super angry, the text says, but he doesn't do anything. He just kind of sits in this passive apathy. And that's not healthy to lead. But instead, Absalom, his other son, he goes, man, my my dad's being too passive. I'm going to take aggressive control. He ends up killing his brother. And then he ends up, Absalom comes after David, overthrows him for a hot minute, takes the throne, kicks his dad out of Jerusalem. As David leaves, Absalom becomes king. But then in the midst of that, Absalom ultimately gets overthrown and dies, So David comes back into Jerusalem, comes back into power, and what we see in 2 Samuel 19, again, is a beautiful picture of David, the king's heart towards the rebel. The king's heart towards the rebel, because David knows what it means to be forgiven. He's forgiven by God because of his uh, terrible sin, and because of that forgiveness, he knows how to extend forgiveness to the people he's leading. He's had these people curse him, kind of spit in his face on the way out. And now those people are coming back and saying, I'm sorry. And instead of holding it over them, David goes, I forgive you. You can come back into my presence. And if you remember, there was a character in the midst of that. Mephibosheth, again, comes to David and says, David, David, you're back. And David goes, why didn't you come with me when I left? And he goes, man, I I didn't know. My servant told me something else. And David goes, well, I'm going to give half of the land to him, half of the land to you. And Mephibosheth doesn't blink, and he goes, I don't even care about the land. I just care that you're here. Can I be back in your presence? Can I be back at your table? What Mephibosheth teaches us is that the king's presence is better than the king's possessions. That being in the presence of a king is more important than what the king can give you. We saw one more chapter of David in 2 Samuel chapter 24, the very last chapter. And what we saw in his life as a reflection of his life is we saw that growth is not always a straight line up and to the right. You remember that chart of straight up and to the right? It's not a direct arrow. It's kind of wavy and bumpy and up and down. Even though you're growing, it's still back and forth. And we saw that our speed of repentance... Our depth of understanding and our cost of obedience are the things we need to pay attention to in that growth. Right, that David in that chapter, he messes up, but he doesn't wait for somebody to call him out. Instead, when he feels convicted, he goes, hey, I did this wrong. He has a quicker speed in his repentance that we ought to be paying attention to as we grow over time. Not only that, but he understands deeper who God is. You remember the story, he has a consequence because of his sin, but he says, listen, put me in the hands of God in this consequence, not in the hands of people, because he has a deeper understanding that God is compassionate, that God loves him. And then the last part of that, he has an understanding of his cost of obedience, If you remember that, he goes, no, 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 no. Like, I'm not going to just build this altar for nothing, although you're offering that to me. There's a cost to obedience. There's a cost to love. And every time we follow Jesus, there's a cost to love, and it's death. And we need to understand that cost, and we need to lean into that cost as we follow the Lord. Well, then we picked up the story in 1 Kings with Solomon, David's son, And we saw in 1 Kings chapter 3 this idea of wisdom and that Solomon tries on this worldly wisdom. What we saw is that worldly wisdom is about securing and establishing power. That's what worldly wisdom gets you. That's what the world would say to do in the midst of leading. But godly wisdom exposes the heart and brings justice. And then Solomon starts, well... (laughs) He listens to the Lord. He asks for wisdom. He leans on God's wisdom. And then the next scene we see in 1 Kings, he builds the, the temple, the, the, the brick and mortar structure of God's presence. And we saw whole details in chapter six about like the, the intricacies of uh, the inside of the temple and the architecture. And we go, why did that matter? Like why did the Bible give us all those verses on all those details? It doesn't seem to matter to us. But what we saw is that God cares deeply cares deeply about the details of where his presence dwells. He cares deeply about the details of where his presence dwells. And then the next Sunday we saw in 1 Kings chapter 8, Tyler preached for us and he talked about how Solomon is inviting God's presence into this temple. And the whole point, the whole point of, of the Bible and this section is his presence. Without God's presence, it doesn't matter. The whole point is to invite God's presence in that he would work in And through us. And then last week, we saw again, which is just, we looked at Solomon and go, okay, man, this guy's finally got it right. He's dependent on God. He's focused on his wisdom. He's focused on his presence. He seems totally surrendered in chapter 8. And then in chapter 11, we saw in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he has this idol of more. And his character gets eroded, and he stops depending on God, and he starts depending on other gods. And leads to his downfall. We looked at this idea, if you give a person an idol, the more their heart can become compromised. The more their heart becomes compromised, the more their heart becomes callous, and becomes hard. The more their heart becomes callous, the more their heart becomes destructive. And that's exactly what happens to King Solomon. That's what happens to us. And then this morning in 1 Kings 12, we just looked at this idea like if you disobey God's warning, it will eventually lead to our destruction. If anything we learned in this series is that we need a king. Man, we need a king. We need Jesus to be our king. As we follow these earthly kings, they will not suffice, and we do it all the time, and we need to have a posture of humility, dependence, to say, Jesus, be our king. Help us put you back on the throne, where we've often taken you off the throne, and we put something else on the throne. We need you to be our king to bow our knee to you. When we do that in humility, it goes well. When we don't do that because of our pride and our insecurity, it does not go well. And the lesson for us again and again and again is to say, okay, God, help me see. Help me see my pride. Help me see my insecurities. Help me be secure in my identity as your child. In the midst of that series, We're going to transition in the next four weeks into Advent. So if you're not familiar with Advent, uh, the word means arrival in Latin. And we're going to transition into the series called An Invitation to the King's Table. We've been talking about Jesus being our king, and we're going to talk about what it means to have an invitation to his table. And so specifically over the next four weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to talk about why do we do communion? The bread and the cup. Why does that matter? Why should it matter? How should it be forming us? And really the key to what we're going to be doing, we're kind of tying these two threads together, is the idea of connecting the idea of the coming king, which is who we see in Jesus as he's born on Christmas, connecting the idea of the coming king to the idea of coming to the king's table and how communion should form and shape and change us. And Advent, if you're not used to practicing it, if you didn't grow up in a church and practice it, it's Advent, again, like I remember when I was a kid, I never lived near my grandparents. We always lived in different states. But man, every now and again, my grandma, my grandma and grandpa, they would, they would come for Christmas. And this is before cell phones, this is before sharing your GPS location, all these things. And so I remember, well, when are grandma and grandpa going to get here? Because I'm so excited to be with them. I don't get a lot of time with them. I love spending time with them. And Well, they'll be here sometime around dinner. You, uh, when is that? So I would sit at the window as a little kid and just wait. I'm watching, I'm waiting. waiting for that car, that Buick, to roll up. <laughs> because I knew when they rolled up, I'm going to get to be with my grandma and grandpa. And So there's this anticipation of waiting, of waiting for their arrival, to be in their presence. And that's what Advent is. It's God's people. They're waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the coming king they've been waiting for. And they're going, when are you going to come? Messiah, when are you going to come and fix all this stuff? And we see him come in a manger. And we see him come in the person of Jesus. So what Advent does, it's both looking back. It's looking back as God's people going like, his people are saying, when are you going to come? When are you going to come? And then he finally comes. But it's also a looking forward to go, you know what? When are you going to come back? We ought to be waiting like me at the window. Jesus, when are you going to return? And you're going to make all things right. And you're going to make all things new. And we'll be in perfect harmony with each other. We should have an anticipation of waiting for that day. And not getting caught up in all the other things. Right? I could have gotten caught up in playing video games or watching like but I cared about my grandparents' presence. What I care about Jesus coming back. And just like there's a looking back in Advent and a looking forward in Advent, there's also a looking back at the table at communion and there's a looking forward to the table, the future table. So the looking back is to remember what Jesus has done for us. As he's with his followers, right before he's betrayed, he breaks bread and he says, this is my body given to you. And he pours out wine. He says, this is my blood shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. When we do this in remembrance of him, it's reenacting the story in us. It's helping us remember all these other kings we've followed all week. We've worshiped all week. We're putting them down, and we're being reminded that Jesus is our true king. When you walk down this aisle, and you take the bread from your brother or sister, and you dip it in the juice, you're remembering, and you're reenacting, and you're rehearsing that true story. But we're not only looking back, we're looking forward. We're going, one day, one day, he's going to come back, and we're going to sit at a banquet table. The king's table, and everything is going to be made right. No more tears, no more destruction, no more sin. Think of the things in your life because of the brokenness of the world. That will be gone, it'll be gone. So we wanted to take this opportunity in these four weeks to kind of connect those dots for what, how does communion form and shape us, and how do we change in the midst of that? So it's not just every week we just kind of walk down the aisle, and for some of us it just gets callous and habit, and like, I don't really understand what this bread means. I mean, I hear the words, but I don't really get it. So we're going to take the classic Advent weeks. If you look at that, we've got uh, hope, we've got peace, and we've got joy, so we're going to realign those kind of words for us. We're going to define them as hope is godly expectations, peace is godly satisfaction, and love is godly service, and joy is godly energy. What do those words have to do with coming down this aisle and receiving the bread and the cup every single week? So in the midst of that, we're going to have several people preach over the next four weeks. Peter Anderson will kick us off next week. Some of you guys know Peter. He often does response. He's the assistant dean of the College of Theology at GCU. I've gotten to know Peter for the last year or two. Him and his family are unbelievable. And so he will preach that starting us. And then Josh Kinsley will preach the next week. And then Jim will preach the following. And then I'll wrap us up in preaching the last on joy. So that's where we're going to go. We hope it will form and will shape us and will have a deeper and richer meaning. Some of the other things that we're going to do is we're going to move our communion station that's been off to the side. We're going to put a table right here in the middle. And the reason we're going to do that is because in the midst of our service, this ought to be the center. What Jesus does for us and his sacrifice and how we remember that every week should be the focal point of what we do in our rehearsal in here every Sunday. And so there'll be some changes that we'll explain that hopefully will, again, begin to give us a deeper, richer understanding of what it means to be invited to the king's table and partake. So that's the plan for the next four weeks. It should be good. I hope in the midst of this good news, we saw that we need a coming king in Jesus, that he is the king we should bow our knee to, that we need to continue to repent and come to him hopefully we're going to be reminded more and more in the next several weeks what that actually looks like as we're formed and shaped by the bread and the cup let me pray father thanks for your good news this morning thanks for your goodness over the last 21 weeks looking at these old testament stories and it being glaring glaring obviously that we need humility that we need you as our king and no one else Would you be with us in our time of response this morning, as we're reminded of your truth through song, through giving, through prayer, and through the table. Make it true to us this morning. We ask it in your name.